0: Father, on a day like this, we cannot help but marvel at your grace, your provision, your wisdom, your power. Father, who are we that we could initiate an endeavor of this sort and have it come to this after just two years? There there is no way. None of us are smart enough. We aren't capable enough, nor do we want to be. For, Father, this is not about us, and we thank you that you remind us of that in the way you dispense your grace to us time and time again. As we make our plans, Father, nonetheless, you guide our footsteps. And Father, we have just love and thankfulness in our hearts for you and for the work that you've done. And we're excited for where it's taking us. And Father, we pray that we would not stumble as we follow you, that we would not walk away from you and set our own course and that we would always remember that no matter what you do here and how you do it, it is all for your glory, that no one would seek to share that glory with you or to call this a work of our own strength or use it to glorify our own name. Let that never be the case, Father. And in the day, should it come when we are no longer serving you, God forbid, it should happen. But Father, if that day comes, shut us down, Father, and move us somewhere better. For Father, we never want this to be anything other than a work that glorifies your name and serves your will to the purposes you have set forth, Father. And we make that our our prayer today and every day. And in that way, Father, we turn to your word today just to... Remember these things and to grow a little more so that we can be better prepared to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, today we're going to conclude. A series of three teachings we've been looking at over the last few weeks in which Jesus gave his disciples teaching on how one might enter the kingdom of God, or as we would say today, how you go to heaven. That might be the easier way to put it. And that series started three weeks ago when we were looking at Jesus rebuking his disciples for their reluctance to minister to children. Remember that moment? And in that moment, he taught the disciples that the underprivileged, which includes young children literally, are going to be part of the kingdom of God as God has designed it. And therefore, as the church, we must be prepared to minister to that group, to those who are underprivileged, who come with needs, to children even. That was our first step in this three-part series. And then last week, we looked at Matthew relating a second moment in which a rich ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin, came to Jesus and asked Jesus, what are the good works that I must do in order to enter the kingdom of God? And if you remember, Jesus first responded by reminding the man that there is only one who is good, and that is God alone. And then Jesus moved to prove to the man that there is no checklist, there is no formula that would ever make one equal to the goodness of God. And if you're not going to be equal to the goodness of God, that is, if you have any sin at all, then you are disqualified from heaven, period. And so... What that means is perfection being the standard to enter into heaven, we must find perfection somewhere outside ourselves, because self-evidently, it's not inside us. So Jesus offered the man the real solution at the end. He said, follow me, that is, trust in my righteousness for your sake, given to you by faith, or you'll have no hope. Now, those are the first two lessons, and we've reached now the point in which Jesus demonstrates this same idea, how do you enter the kingdom, from a third perspective, Now, after you get through the first two lessons, here's what you know. It kind of gives us a ramp here into the third lesson. We've learned that God is in the business of bringing men and women, uh, and even children, into the kingdom by faith. That's where we started. And that we learned at that time he can do it anytime he wants. He can do it to anyone he wants. He can do it even without a, a human being being involved in the process. I mean, we looked at David and John the Baptist and even Paul. These people were not saved because someone preached the gospel to them. They were saved because God changed their hearts. And that's what he does for everybody. And then we learned that God has to be the one who does that work, that there can't be a second way, because we are incapable of getting our own way to heaven. That's why Jesus uttered the phrase, it is finished, when he was on the cross, because he was declaring all the work that is necessary for someone to be reconciled to the Father had been accomplished in his life and in his sacrificial death. There is nothing else that needs to be done. All right, so the only way to enter the kingdom, or as we say, go to heaven, is to be born again, the Bible says. That is, to be given, to be receiving Christ's sinless spirit, which then makes us righteous. That is, our our standing before God becomes righteous, though in the meantime we still live in a body that is sinful. And all that comes by grace through faith. That's what we've learned so far. So. You would expect that anyone who would hear that message in some form would jump at the chance to receive a salvation that is made so easy that is that is so, uh, that asks so little that, that has no responsibility on us except to receive it. Why would anyone reject such a simple and powerful truth? We might wonder right well, in fact, of course, many do reject it, and that raises the next question in the series that we 're looking at here that finishes in in the end of chapter 19. That question is this. Why do people turn away from so great a salvation? And Matthew's account picks up again where we left off last week at the very end of the moment in which Jesus and that ruler had an encounter, back in verse 22. So having just told the ruler that he must leave his wealth behind if he want, wanted to enter the kingdom, Jesus then turns and addresses his disciples. So let's start there, verse 22. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. That's where we start this morning. And as we learned last week, Jesus demanded, at the very end of the prior encounter, he demanded that that rich man... Give up all his wealth, take the money that he gains from selling it, and give that money to the poor. And as we studied, he did this as a test. That is, he was testing the man's heart. He knew this man would not be willing to meet that test. There was no way this guy was going to give up all his money. And in that way, what Jesus was doing was revealing that this man's unwillingness to give up his wealth was an indication of his unwillingness to accept Jesus' authority or to accept his word. This ruler was so attached to his wealth that he chose it over the word of Christ directing him to sell it. So his problem here, and this is something you need to understand because it's very easy to miss this, the problem with that guy was not greed. The problem was not selfishness. The problem was he trusted his wealth to get him to heaven more than he trusted Jesus' words on how to do so. And how do I know that's true? Well, look at what Jesus says to the disciples. He says, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom. A well-known statement I would suggest to you that it's often misunderstood. You might suppose he's saying something like this. You might think he's saying, well, wealth has such a a corrupting influence that it can have the power to block our entry into heaven. And and some would even go so far as to say, well, if you are rich, that is an instant disqualification for heaven. You must divest yourself of your wealth if you hope to go to heaven. That's a works-based mindset, of course. But notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say it's impossible. Have you ever heard that verse quoted in that way, it's impossible for a rich man to go to heaven? If you've ever heard it that way, it's actually misquoting the Bible. He says it's hard, not impossible, all right? Wealth does not disqualify you from heaven. And on the other hand, nor will giving away all your wealth guarantee you entry into heaven. Remember, there are no good works, quote, good works, that can gain us heaven, and that would even include the good work of giving away all your money, that is not a recipe for heaven. There is no checklist. There is no list of things you do to get to heaven, and that's no longer on the, that's not on the list either. So the point is, the standard for entry into heaven is not how little wealth you have; it's how little sin you have, and the amount of sin that you have to have if you're going to enter heaven is zero. No sin enters heaven, which is why you cannot work your way to heaven. Not even by giving away all your wealth will you enter heaven. The only way you enter heaven is by trusting Jesus' perfect life lived on your behalf and his sacrificial death paid in your place. In other words, you take his righteousness and that's what uh, uh, qualifies you to enter heaven. So how then does Jesus mean that wealth is an impediment to salvation? And here's why. Because for some who are wealthy... Wealth is proof to them that they are already heaven-bound. All right? In this, especially true in Jesus' day, let me give you some cultural background. In Pharisaic culture, under Pharisaic Judaism, wealth was viewed as divine favor. And as such, it was a sign that God approved of that person. So if a person was wealthy, it would mean, they thought, that God had assigned that person this earthly reward of wealth because that person was living an especially righteous life. God was rewarding their righteousness with that wealth. So that was the thinking of the day. And it also had a, a, a corollary. Conversely, people thought that if you were poor, or if you were lame, or if you were blind, you know, the conditions that often prevailed in that day, lepers and the like, what did they think it meant for those people? Exactly the opposite, right? They thought they had sin, or in the worst case, they might think it's their parents' sin that caused them to be born blind, as you know from another story in the Gospels. So there was this kind of quid pro quo, cause and effect theology that said, if you're making God happy, he gives you money. If you're not doing the right things, God makes you poor. That was the way the world thought in that day. And of course, as you might imagine, that kind of thinking becomes a license for greed. Because it basically justifies And encourages an unrestrained pursuit of material wealth. Right? I mean, it legitimizes the pursuit of wealth because if God doesn't want me to have the wealth, I won't get it. But if I do get it, it means He's happy with me. I'm all good. And what's interesting about this theory was the Pharisees used it to their advantage. It legitimized their own accumulation of wealth as religious leaders. Pharisees were very wealthy. Elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus tells us that they were very greedy and they had a love of money. And they used their religious position over the people to enrich themselves at the expense of the people. You want a divorce? Well, it's not lawful, but if you give me a little money, we can work it out. Oh, you want a special seat in the synagogue? Well, that's going to cost you. That's how they played the game. And they taught others that their wealth, the Pharisees' own wealth, vindicated them. That, in other words, if I wasn't doing the right things, God wouldn't have given me all this money. Ergo, you must believe that I am doing the right things. All right, so wealth had become a sign of God's endorsement. And rich people then were thought among the population of Israel to have an automatic entry into heaven. And that's why Jesus says it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Because he's saying not that wealth itself disqualifies him. The problem with the wealth and the easy life, the easy life that it creates, is in how it deludes a person into thinking they have no need for God's mercy, they've already made it. Wealth's effect on the heart could be understood this way. It's sort of the opposite of the effect of going through a crisis or a trauma. You know, you've heard it said there's no atheists in foxholes. That's a saying from years ago. That, what it means is this. When someone fears for their life or, or they endure a, a difficult set of circumstances in their life, then naturally questions of life and death will come to mind, And in the midst of that trial, that person might become intensely interested in where they stand before God because they have an existential crisis. And in that way, God can use a difficult set of circumstances to draw a person's heart toward Jesus and toward the gospel. We all uh, understand this, and I'm sure some of us have even seen it happen. Now what Jesus is saying is the opposite is also true. That is, when someone is too satisfied with this life when their wealth has given them a degree of ease and comfort and access to the world's best things. You know what that does to the heart in many cases? It causes that person to lose interest in the next life because this life is just so darn entertaining. And wealth has that effect. The most powerful spiritual sedative known to the world is wealth. Wealth allows a person to have everything that life can offer, and as a result, give very little thought to the life that follows. And in fact, wealth is so powerful, Jesus says, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to find his way to heaven. Now look, there is no trick to understanding what he just said. Some people have gone to great lengths to tell a story around what this actually means, and if they do that, they've completely missed the point. Just take it at face value. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? No. And can a rich man find his way to heaven? No, not if his wealth is proof to him that he's already there. That's the issue. He's denying, Jesus is denying the Pharisaic view of wealth. He's denying that wealth vindicates you. Friends, if you have plenty of money, God be praised, but it doesn't vindicate you. It says nothing about you, nor does it say anything about God's pleasure in you, not one bit. Wealth is not proof that heaven has already come. It is a poor substitute for that. And in the course of things, it inoculates a person to seeking true riches, if they're not careful. So long as a rich person thinks that their wealth is in some way an endorsement of God, they will forever find it impossible to seek for the kingdom of God. That is the psychological and spiritual effect of wealth on someone who is unbelieving. And let me tell you friends, that false view of wealth is not limited to first century Judaism. It still exists today. Today there is a form of false teaching in the church that claims wealth is proof of God's favor. And it's called the prosperity gospel. And the teaching claims that God wants to make you wealthy, that it's actually in God's purpose and desire that his children have lots of earthly wealth. And that if we do our part, then he will oblige us with that wealth. Conversely, they'll tell you that if you lack wealth and desire it, well, friends, that's just a sign that there's something missing in your relationship with God. You need to work on that. When you work on that, the wealth will show up. I would love to take a poll of how many of you have been in a church and heard a message along those lines. I won't do it, uh, but I would suppose I'll see a sea of hands go up if I asked. Now, these same false teachers will tell you that the way to pleasing God in order to obtain that cash is to give wealth to that teacher and their ministry. And as you do that, God will return more of it. It's, it's kind of like uh, a cash machine. You know, you put a little in and God will bring a lot more back to you. And they'll tell you that you have to release, there's all these little words they use, you have to release this blessing from God to gain that greater wealth. Now, friends, I call this a prosperity gospel, but this is no gospel at all. Gospel means good news, and there is nothing good about this news. All right? It is heresy, and the only thing that this teaching ever accomplishes is making those false teachers richer at the expense of those that they have deceived. And just like the Pharisees, these rich teachers will point to their own wealth and their private jets and their fancy jewelry and their expensive suits and point to them as vindication. That is to say, if I wasn't saying the right thing, if this wasn't true, would God give me all this stuff? It's a false proof. It does not vindicate them. It is just the latest version of Satan's favorite con game. Satan can make someone wealthy if that person does what Satan wants. This is not hard to understand. There is only one person who gets richer in that scheme, by the way, and it's not you. Nevertheless, millions choose to believe in this lie, and they do it because they desperately want what this person is offering, that is, earthly wealth. They believe in what this person says. And if you believe, and by believe, I don't mean be trapped in it or be under the influence of it, I mean truly buy into it. If you believe that gospel, that false gospel, then you will have no interest in the real one. And you'll see that. If you've ever talked to someone who's trapped in this lie and and sold out for it and believes in it, when you try to preach the real gospel to them, they don't want to hear it. All right. Remember what Jesus said would be true of his church in the last days? In Revelation 3.17, he says, To that church, he says, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, you do not know you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. It's exactly the problem. That is proof of the camel through the eye of the needle saying That is, a church of the last days will point to its own earthly wealth as proof it has need of nothing, including no need of the gospel, which is why it is blind, spiritually blind, why it is poor, spiritually poor, why it is naked, not covered by the atoning work of Christ, unsaved. The church of the last days, according to scripture, is largely buildings filled with people, many of whom do not know Christ. It's called a church because there's a sign on the door and there's a cross above it, but that doesn't change the people who walk through it, not automatically. And they are coming with a desire for things of this world, not the next, and that's where their heart stays. So truly, a rich man who believes their riches vindicate them before God cannot enter the kingdom because once a heart has found heaven in earthly riches, it stops looking for the real one. And that's what happened to this ruler in the earlier scene from last week. He wasn't interested in Jesus' way to heaven because if that way required leaving behind his earthly riches then he just wasn't interested. And as you remember last week, we said Jesus was not setting that standard out as if it's a requirement for heaven. He was testing the man's heart to simply expose him for who he was, to demonstrate that his heart was not truly interested in heaven. His heart was interested in a plan that kind of fit all the desirable pieces together the way he wanted. He was trying to make his own way to heaven. That was what Jesus exposed. Now, as Jesus says this to the disciples, he basically says, look, guys, riches get in the way of of the kingdom. They do not vindicate you. Look at their reaction in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, well, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, well, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In Greek, in verse 25, there is a, there's a strong emphasis on the degree of shock here. The, the term very astonished is, is emphasized in two Greek words. And the point here is they just cannot believe what they just heard. And that's why they say to Jesus, well, then who could be saved? Look, you have to understand where these guys are coming from. They have been taught their whole life that riches guaranteed heaven because it was vindicated, it demonstrated God's favor in somebody's life. And they saw proof of it in the, in the Pharisees. You know, if you're not thinking about this correctly, you can look at false teachers in their riches and think that that proves their teaching correct. Right? Because you expect the, it's like, I always make fun of people who do financial planning or investment, uh, brokers and so on. I, I know that's, this is unfair, but you always wonder, right, if they have all the answers about how to make a lot of money, why are they still working? Um, You know, it's not quite fair. It doesn't work that way. But you think about it like, well, gee, you know how to invest so much. Why are you still behind that desk, you know? Well, it's how our mind thinks, right? If somebody says, like if somebody gave you the secret to dieting and they're not thin, or if somebody... (laughs) Please, please, no letters, please. If, If somebody... You know, if somebody's got this solution that they're sold on, and yet you look at them and the solution isn't working for them, don't you question it, right? Isn't that normal? And to some extent, it's probably healthy. A little skepticism can be helpful. But that's the issue here. It works the opposite, too. If somebody says, God wants to make you rich, here's how it works, and the guy or gal is rich, you think, well, gee, they must know what they're talking about. It must be true. That's the culture they lived under, that's what they had seen their whole life. Rich Pharisees, Poor people who seem to have nothing going for them and they had problems in their life and you sort of just assume it's cause and effect. So the real question that people entertained in that day was can a poor person still go to heaven? And and, and that thinking is indicative of this whole problem. That's why they asked Jesus, who sinned that this man should be born blind? Him or his parents? You see, they're already assuming there's something wrong with this guy otherwise God wouldn't have made him blind. Jesus' correction is, It had nothing to do with his sin or his parents' sin. He was born this way so as to glorify God. You see, God can take your circumstances and use them to glorify himself no matter what they are. Being rich does not make you better prepared to glorify God. I would argue, in fact, it might actually make it harder for you. And certainly being poor can be a powerful witness in how you handle it and what God does through it, and so can infirmities of one kind or another or disadvantages of life. We're so wired now as a culture to highlight any disadvantage or exception and, and call for restitution. And I get it. I mean, I, there are some unfairness, you know, issues of injustice. We all know it's true. But the point is this. You should, as a Christian, see your circumstances as an opportunity to glorify God, not as an opportunity to whine. And even as you work in social terms to try to make things better, go do it. It's fine. Don't forget your witness in the middle of it. Right? The witness is to say, God, how do I glorify you in the midst of these circumstances? That was not Pharisaic thinking. So Jesus is now flipping that thinking on its head. And he's saying to his disciples, the rich are not more likely to go to heaven. They are less likely to go to heaven. That is to say, it can hurt the process. And Jesus says this, and the disciples are stunned. They're like, well, gee, everything we've been taught says that rich people have a, a step ahead of us. But if they aren't going to heaven, well, who's going to heaven then? It just shows you how far-reaching that false teaching had gone in that day. I think it's kind of humorous and ironic that the apostles began their service to Jesus believing in a prosperity heresy. You know, it's kind of indicative, right? We start somewhere and then we get better. Now, even as I say that though, in a way their question is correct. Who can be saved? That is to say, how does anyone put aside their instinctive desire to trust in this world, which we all have, and turn from that to trusting Jesus. I mean, why does anybody do it? Because wealth is not the only thing blocking people from seeking a way to heaven. You know this, right? People put their trust in all kinds of things. Intellect, those who think themselves too smart for the gospel. Physical beauty, those who are too enamored in how they look. They don't think about who God is or what comes after the body is gone. Those who have career achievements and desire social status, or fame, or, 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 or in some cultures, it's ancestral background, who your ancestors are determines whether you go to, hell. I mean, we can all find something to lean on in this world instead of on Jesus if we want to. And in all those cases, the achievements and the desires of this world just become excuses to put aside any concerns or thought about what comes after death. Now we're all prone to that. We all are prone to misplaced affections. So how does anyone rise above the noise to hear the voice of God. I mean, the odds, frankly, seem kind of low, and I think that's in part what the disciples are saying incredulously here. If the rich don't have an advantage, well, then who has an advantage? How does anyone figure this out? And then Jesus confirms their suspicions in verse 26. He says, you know what? You're right. With with people, this is impossible. And you need to understand what he's saying here, and and to do that, you need to understand what the this is. The pronoun this, or or the, the... the antecedent to that word is the key. And if you look at the context, what is the antecedent to this? It's finding the kingdom. Finding the kingdom is the this. So he's saying, if salvation required that people would turn from trusting in wealth or, or anything else in this world, in order to follow Jesus, if that's how it worked, then salvation would be impossible. Because people do not make that turn on their own. The human heart being desperately wicked, will not seek God of its own. Last week I read from Romans 3 where Paul told you that there is no one who seeks for God. None who do good, no, not one. That that puts a lie to the idea of seeker-friendly this or that. There's no such thing as a seeker. Now, yeah, there are people who have gone into a pursuit of religion. Well, that's a seeking of a sort, but they're not seeking the real God. They're seeking like that ruler was. I want to find a God of my own desire. I want to sort of find the solution that fits me. And then there are also those who are being moved by the Spirit and are about to find the true God. And we call them seekers, but really, they've already been found. Jesus is just leading them to the place where they're going to find the truth that he's got waiting for them. So in effect, they're already saved, if you will. They're already moving a path God has appointed. But it's those people that haven't met or reached that point yet, but yet have some interest in religion that we call seekers. And that's not really the right term. They're searchers. They're not seeking God. They're searching for what they want. With God's grace, some will still find him. But the point is this. If salvation required that God waits in heaven for people to turn away from the world and turn toward Jesus, it would never happen. There would be exactly zero people saved. Notice that Jesus, in this case, does not say it is hard for people or unlikely for people. Here, he does say it is impossible. What is impossible with man, thankfully, is possible with God. The power to turn a heart away from the world and toward the Lord belongs to God alone. Remember what John wrote in the prologue of his gospel. Let me just read you a few verses. In verse four, he says, in him, meaning in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse nine, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, those who were his, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of will of man, but of God. There was a light, he says, it came into the darkness, and I love this idea of the, the analogy here that as the light came into the darkness, the darkness didn't comprehend it. And the world, not knowing Jesus, didn't recognize him. Not even his own people recognized him. But to those who were given the right to become children of God, they received him. And they were born again, John says. But that birthing again, that spiritual rebirth, he says, was not of blood, that is to say, it was not because of their family associations. They weren't being saved because they're Jewish or whatever. Nor was that born-again moment because of the will of the flesh. That's a way of saying nothing of the flesh was involved. They didn't do any good works. They didn't hit the checklist. They didn't get born again because they did the right things. And then lastly, nor were they born by the will of man. They were not born again because of some personal choice. Why were they born again? He says, but of God. God birthed them again in the Spirit, and as a result, they turned to the light. That's what you've been learning Through these three parts of teaching in Matthew 19. Entering the kingdom is a work that God does to bring us to himself. That work is centered on Jesus's sinless life and on his sacrificial death on the cross. It all begins and ends there. He did everything required to bring us into the kingdom. But you are also learning that your receiving of that work requires a change in our heart. That is, God has to bring the faith to us by his spirit because it is impossible, Jesus says, for the human heart to turn away from the world on its own. That's why he can bring faith to a child, but that's also how he brings faith to an adult. It's why both the rich and the poor are equally accessible to God and equally outside the opportunity for heaven, apart from God. And as Paul said in 1 Corinthians, It is in God's eternal purpose to show favor to the weak over the powerful, so that when we all get there, no one may boast. There will not be rich people in heaven saying, Thank God I got those riches. That's what brought me here to heaven. So wealth stands in the way of entering the kingdom in the sense, like any other worldly attraction, it can remove our incentive to seek for God. Wealth is not the enemy. And I'll be clear on this for you who may have wealth here. Wealthy Christians are not disqualified from heaven. Having wealth is not a sin. Uh, On the contrary, wealthy Christians, I would argue, possess great potential to impact the kingdom. That is, if they put their wealth to work for it. And in fact, I think the Lord has assigned great wealth to men throughout the ages, godly men, to make the point that wealth itself is not an intrinsic enemy. Abraham was wealthy in his day. Joseph was wealthy in his day. David was wealthy. Solomon, the most wealthy man that's ever lived. Now, of course, in all cases, particularly in Solomon's, there is some corrupting influence there that we can take note of. So wealth is not the problem. The love for it is, and you've heard this. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9, those who want to get rich, think about this in the Christian context now, Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So for a believer, wealth can be dangerous if your desire for it competes with your affection for Christ. And if it tempts you to set aside fellowship Uh, prayer, study, personal sacrifices of one kind or another for the kingdom, if it tempts you to push that aside for the pursuit of wealth, then you're one of these people that we're worried about. Now, here's how I've seen wealth play out in the life of most Christians in the West today. That is, at the point in life where you get old enough and established enough in what you do, that wealth starts to become easy. That is, your your pay has gone up, your investments are doing well, it's starting to pour in, you're in the, the time of life when that's what many people start to experience, and it suddenly changes their view on life. And that's when vacations become common. The second or third house now adds to the portfolio. The the distractions of wealth and the ease of life in which it provides moves you further and further away from a devoted interest and involvement in your church and in service to Christ. You still attend when you're in town. You still check on things from the web. You still read a book once in a while and you call it church in the meantime because after all your busy life can't accommodate anything more than that if that's you, your desire for earthly wealth is robbing you of eternal riches. Because as Jesus said, you store up your treasure in heaven, not on earth, and that was the detail the apostles were missing. Look at how this chapter ends, verse 27. Peter said to him, well, behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, well, truly I say to you that you who have followed me In the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. All right, time for the conviction part of the teaching. And let me just say as a preface here, if you're sitting here thinking, gosh, I'm glad I'm not wealthy, be careful. Did you drive here today in a car? Uh, You have some nice clothes at home? Your home have two bathrooms, indoors? Do you understand that by worldly standards, you are, everyone in this room is wealthier than probably 90 to 95% of the world's population? I mean in relative terms. And if you look at it historically, that is the wealth of the world as it's come over history, everyone in here is a king for what you can do in your life. I'm just, I'm just saying you've got to be careful. There's always a relative scale here. Yes, there's always someone richer than you. Yeah. And there's always someone poorer than you. Yeah. The issue is not in absolute terms how much you have. The issue is what does your wealth as it exists today, what is the effect of it on your life? And when you, you'll, you'll know you're wealthy when you have choices. Poor people don't have choices. Every day they work or they don't eat. You know, if you have choices, you've probably got at least some wealth. And if you have some wealth, you have some of this potential problem in your life. And if you have a ton of wealth, you know, I wouldn't trade places with you. And I say that honestly because I know myself. And if you gave me a ton of money, I would not be standing here right now. I, I would not. If you gave me, a, if I had a, a $100 million portfolio, you would never see me. <laughs> you might read about me on Twitter, but you would. <laughs> And I'm just saying, because I know myself, it's, it's, it is, uh, you know, everyone's got their, sin, their particular sins. And, you know, love of the finer things of life is part of the things I struggle with, like anyone would. I don't, you know, no one wants to give up everything, but I've, I've struggled my whole life on how much do I have to give up to do what I'm doing? And, you know, you go through that process, and it's just, I'm not saying I've done it right every time, but I'm just saying it's a struggle. If you gave me a lot of money, man, you would unleash the beast, you know? So I'm just saying, as we get into this Little piece here, and we finish for the day. Don't be thinking that he's talking about your neighbor necessarily. So, Jesus, you remember when Jesus came to Peter by the Sea of Galilee at the beginning of the gospel? Peter's in a boat fishing. That's what he did for a living with James and Andrew. And as they're fishing, Jesus says, Drop your nets, come follow me, and you'll become a fisher of men. Remember that? And Peter obeyed that command. And when you think about it, you might assume, well, you know, Peter was just being, you know, obedient with great sacrifice. And yeah, there's a piece of that, certainly. But remember, he wasn't trading one desk for another. Or he wasn't trading a cubicle for the corner office. That is, this isn't a move up for him. He walked away from his entire livelihood. He abandoned his business, which was his only means of support. And as he did that, he instantly became a poor man. Instantly. And that's why he and the other disciples, he says, have left everything to come follow you. And why did he do it? Yeah, there had to have been a degree of obedience and personal sacrifice involved in this, yeah. But you get from what he says here that there was another piece to this. He was basing his decision on the Pharisaic teaching concerning God and wealth. He was expecting that as he devoted himself to this calling, God would repay that sacrifice with earthly wealth in that day. And then Jesus says, wealth is not a means to the kingdom. In fact, wealth is an impediment to the kingdom. And Peter panics And he has this crying, he's like, we just left everything for this. (laughs) Could you have told me this in the, You know, shouldn't I have signed like a waiver or something? There's some disclaimer. I mean, I thought this was gonna lead somewhere, now you're telling me I've got nothing? And he's worried about all that sacrifice. Look, it's funny when we look at it from this point of view, but I bet you that's in the heart of almost every believer when Jesus brings you to that point of self-sacrifice, right? You're wondering, but if I give this up, well, who's going to make the mortgage? If I quit my job to go into ministry, who's going to take care of that problem? Who's going to put my kids through college? You know the answer to that? Jesus. Right? I mean, it's it's actually uh, self-delusion to think that it's your employer that's giving you your provision. Or that it's your 401k that has made your retirement secure. If you want to see how fast God can change those things, read the book of Job. So you are only as secure as God wants you to be for as long as he wants you to be. And you're not, you know, in in human terms, we see that our work results in income. Yes, I get it. But in eternal terms, you need to understand God can turn that tap off anytime he wants. So it's simply to say, stop trusting that your industriousness and your hard work and your career achievements and all the rest are the reason why you have what you have. They're the mechanism God used, yes, but he can turn it off. He can can have your bank account raided by somebody in, in Belarus. He can have your health go down the drain overnight, and suddenly you spend your life savings caring for someone in a in a you know in a home for for disadvantaged or, for, or disabled people. My dad's gone through that. My dad uh, has been in a, a state of need for ten years, and you know the, my mom and dad's wealth just you know as you go through that. And some of you have dealt with that. I'm just saying God can do what He does. You can't sit back and say, "Oh, we're set now, honey." Be careful with that. And so. Peter is taking that same perspective. I gave up expecting a return on this investment. I'm not gonna get that return. And in verse 28, Jesus says, no, there is a return here. You just gotta see it from the right point of view. There is great reward for those who make sacrifices in service to Jesus in this life as he requires, but here's the key. They will not come in this life. This puts a lie to the prosperity gospel at its heart. God's purpose is not to reward you here and now, though, yes, he will care for you. You know, you will have your daily bread. He is not going to leave you without. But the idea that he's going to build you up in a mountain of wealth on this side of heaven to prove his love for you is false. He will do it in a place where you can't lose it. Jesus says there's a reward system in the kingdom, and the system involves two parts. First, he says there will be rewards in the form of privilege, or we could say authority, to serve in the kingdom government. Did you know that in the life that it comes, when Jesus returns and sets up the kingdom on earth and we walk into it with him in our glorified bodies, did you know that there will be a government over the earth, that he will lead that government over the nations? Isaiah says this in 9, 6. He says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this that the Lord is going to come back and sit at the seat of David that is in the temple in Jerusalem he will rule this world in that place that's the headquarters if you will that's the government seat and verse 28 Jesus says that when this happens at the regeneration of man that's a way of saying at the resurrection when we all come back in our new bodies He says, we will share in that rule. And in particular, the 12 men who were with him, minus Judas, plus Matthias, those 12 will have special positions in the kingdom when it comes. They will rule over the 12 tribes of Israel in their land as they are situated. The the nation of Israel will return to the promised land and the tribes will be set apart in areas for them just as was given through Joshua. And each of these 12 men will rule over one of those 12 tribes in the time of the kingdom under Jesus' authority. That is a tremendous privilege. And I want you to think about this for a minute. They're going to be ruling over their tribe's namesake. Reuben will be there in the tribe of Reuben, and they'll be ruling over Reuben and over Levi and over Asher and Judah and Joseph and the rest. That's how privileged Jesus was saying these men will be in that time to come. So all of us have a role in the government. I know you may be sitting there saying, well, I don't really care. I don't like to be in management anyway. But you know what? If Jesus says it's good and it's a reward, you want it. Trust me, when the time comes, you'll see why. But there is a second part to his reward system, he says. In verse 29, he goes on to say, and as you make earthly sacrifices to serve him, losing things like your family relationships, if necessary, or losing possessions, whatever they may be, farms and the like, God will replace those with heavenly equivalents many times over. So here's the real folly of pursuing earthly wealth. It's the old adage of of let's make a deal. You're giving up something of lesser value, or if you do what's supposed to happen, you're supposed to give up something of lesser value to gain something of greater value. Those of you who hold on to this world too tight, you're giving up what's behind door number two. You haven't even seen it yet, but you can be sure it's many times better than what you have. All right? He says, give up a home if necessary, give up a farm if God calls you to, doing so to engage in meaningful endeavors, to, in, to work for Christ now, and he says, when you get to the kingdom, you will enjoy the fruit of your labor at a level beyond what you can get even now. And that reward system takes into account your service and your sacrifices. Now, when we get into chapter 20 next week, he tells at the outset of that chapter a parable that explains the criteria for how he assigns rewards. And we're gonna deal with the rewards in detail over the next couple of weeks. But for now, you just need to understand this. The sacrifice that you make now, whatever that is, and I'm not giving you a recipe. I don't know what you're supposed to do. That's between you and Jesus. Not everyone's supposed to give everything away. That's not the goal. The goal is to be responsive to his desire in your life, whatever that looks like. So the key is sacrifice, because in serving Jesus, there is always sacrifice. There is no such thing as serving Jesus and everything else in your life stays the same. (laughs) Look if you figured out how to do that Please tell me because i've been making some bad choices then along the way But in my experience you have to give up something you got to give up time or energy uh, Or funds to work in the kingdom program and it comes from somewhere right and look about it You know in peter's case he couldn't have stayed in the boat And followed jesus they were mutually exclusive So he had to give up one to get the other and every time you choose to obey Christ, in my experience, you're saying yes to him and simultaneously you're saying no to something else. I mean, almost every time. And that something else is always something your flesh prefers. And so I'll give you some examples for what it's worth. It's, it's like spending less time at work or less time selling, less time making widgets, less time climbing a ladder. Or maybe it's less money to buy nice things like houses or farms and instead that money goes to support kingdom work. But at the very least, it's less free time. It's less opportunity to pursue things that you know are idle pursuits of life that let us enjoy the days. I'm not saying you're gonna become free and totally absent anything enjoyable. No, that's not it at all. I'm just saying you know it's the old checkbook and calendar analogy. Show me your checkbook, show me your calendar. I can get a pretty good snapshot of whether you're walking with Jesus or not or how well you are. And as you make those sacrifices, don't think you're doing it as Peter did. What are we gonna get out of it? What's there for me in this? <laughs> I mean, look, that's not, it's a natural perspective. It's kind of a little immature, but we understand why it's there. He, Jesus is loving us so much. He doesn't just call us to make sacrifices without opportunity for return. He says, oh, trust me, there's a good return in this. It just comes in the kingdom. And here's the best part. Look what he says at the end of verse 29. Not only will you have all these wonderful things, but you will have an eternity to enjoy them you'll have eternal life with them. So friends, there is a prosperity teaching in the Bible. But the Bible's prosperity teaching says sacrifice now to prosper later. And as a result, I think it's good for a believer to pursue wealth. Just be sure you're pursuing it in the right way. Like everything else, living by this truth requires depending on faith. You have to trust the Lord that if you do as he's calling you to do with the sacrifices that come with it, you need to trust him that it all works out to your advantage in the end, that he won't leave you high and dry at the end of all of this, and that whatever you suffer in now won't compare to the glory that is to be revealed. And that's why he ends with that very sobering statement, the first will be last, the last will be first. And he's speaking about this eternal trade-off. You can have a reward, pick it, now or later. (coughs) Those who pursue being first now, in effect, are making a trade. The effort to be first in life, whether that's financially or otherwise, it comes at a cost, and that cost will not be known until you enter the kingdom. And in the kingdom, those who have made themselves first in wealth or power or privilege will be surprised to learn those things were not Jesus' priorities, and that those, on the other hand, who sacrifice worldly achievements in order to build the kingdom, to whatever degree Jesus requires, we'll be pleased to find out that those sacrifices were returned many times over. All right, that's, look, there's a saying in preaching, you preach to yourself first. I'm preaching to myself here. You know, it's a constant battle to remember that if you invest in this life, you only have what it offers. That's not our goal, right? Our greatest witness, arguably in a Western world focused on materialism, wealth, and fame, our greatest witness is to go contrary to that culture, and make things about the kingdom more important than the things of this world. Do that in a consistent way, in a genuine way, not in a pious way. And watch how people are, are curious about why and where that's leading you and what caused you to do that. And gospel conversations will open up out of that. All right, friends, we're gonna pray. We're gonna finish without a last song. And as I finish in prayer, uh, then we'll be dismissed for what we're doing next today. I appreciate your time and your attention. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Father we have blessing in this room I would argue beyond measure one to another it is different but in all cases it is more than enough I propose and Father I would ask that you would give us first a contentment in all that we have so that we would not make the seeking of more of it a distraction to our service to you secondly Father I pray for those who have been blessed in great ways that they would see their wealth as a powerful tool in your hands and use it to glorify you and thirdly father for those of us who seek for it beyond what you intend to provide we would feel the conviction to rest in you and to be still and to know you are the lord and to redevote retarget our priorities on things you care about and leave the the pursuit of wealth to someone else because as you told us in your word father we are to seek first the kingdom of god and your righteousness knowing that you will appoint all those other things to us as you see fit. Father, we trust in that. We thank you for the reminder. and We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.